that trust and that lifeline restored with God opens us to knowing ourselves and therefore each other in relationship. Welcome to the Breakthrough of Grace podcast, a place where we share the stories of ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. We invite you to join us as our speakers talk about their journey towards living lives of rich Christian authenticity to encourage and inspire each one of us. We are thankful you're here and taking this time to spend with us. A reading from the 143rd Psalm, verses 8 through 10. Lord, let me hear of your steadfast love in the morning, for in you I place my trust. Teach me the way I should go, for to you do I lift up my soul. Save me, O Lord, from my enemies, for I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level path. Welcome, friends, to this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. This episode features a talk by me, Simon Kine, on the virtue of trust in God. St. Therese the Little Flower wrote the following in her spiritual reflections towards the end of her life. She writes, My little way is the way of spiritual childhood, the way of trust and absolute self-surrender. During my talk, I draw on the Catechism which teaches how, in Genesis chapter 3, we fell and sin entered the world. And that moment of sin was all the more grievous because it caused man's trust in the goodness of God to die in his heart. In light of this loss of trust, the church offers a message of great hope. Drawing on the scriptures and the arc of salvation history, we discover how God has been seeking to repair, restore, and return us to a place of deep abiding trust in Him, a trust which culminates in the complete self-gift of Jesus on the cross. This call to return to trust in God is normally one of the core teachings of the Gospels. It finds new expression in the private relations of St. Faustina and her prayer, Jesus, I trust in you, which serves as the core of the devotion to Jesus in his divine mercy. This talk concludes in prayer as we are invited to offer up the litany of trust composed by the community of the Sisters of Life. This talk was recorded on campus at John Paul the Great Catholic University in Southern California. We hope that it blesses you as much as it did us. It was May 2015, and for the past five years, Syria had been engulfed in a civil war, and the conditions for the Christian faithful and the local populace were extremely difficult. Father Jacques Morad, a Syriac Catholic priest in the Archdiocese of Holmes, was serving the Christian community in Khoriatan as prior of the Mar Elian or Saint Elian Monastery. And due to the conflict, the monastery had become a refuge both physically and spiritually with those threatened and displaced by the war. And while other clergy had fled to safety or worse, were kidnapped by the aggressors, Father Jacques stayed and by sheer force of his commitment to his people, and combined with the devotion of the local populace that they had to Mar or Saint Elian, the monastery was viewed as a place of safety. 
Even when rocket fire and artillery fell in the area, the monastery was not struck, miraculously so. And both Christian believers and Muslims alike attributed the protection of the monastery and this place to the intercession of Mar Elian. On May 20th of 2015, though, that all ended. ISIS took control of the region of Palmyra. They entered the town of Quariatan, and they kidnapped Father Jacques. Blindfolded and shoved into a car, he was taken by his ISIS captors to Raqqa, the stronghold for ISIS in Syria. Shoved into a 19 by 10 foot prison cell, him with another deacon. He was beaten, tortured, and threatened that if he did not convert to Islam, he would be killed. Father Jacques would later describe the graces he received during his captivity. I received the grace to be thankful for what was happening to me. I didn't allow any hatred to enter in or take hold of me. After one episode of being scourged with a rubber hose, Father Jacques' captors held a knife to his neck, and the captor began to count to ten. Father Jacques, expecting that the end was near, began to pray for God's mercy and forgiveness, entrusting himself in that moment to God. Friends, I'd like to speak today on the subject of trust in God and its centrality to the Christian life. Our catechism, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, we were born, we were created in original glory, and the relationship between God and man and the trust that was embedded in that was untarnished. It was a source of life for man in that union with God. And the catechism puts it this way, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. And for this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. And to accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior. In his Son and through him he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. God's desire for men and for women from the earliest days of salvation, indeed from our very beginnings, was to experience and express in our lives this plan of sheer goodness. To know God's intentions are and always have been pure and good and seeking the best for us. But then as we also know from our catechism, Genesis chapter 3, the catastrophic fall begins. This is how it's described. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Scripture scholars for centuries have just studied this assault of the enemy, the way he causes division, confusion, accusation, doubt within ourselves, but more importantly, doubt within this goodness of God. He questions not only what God said, but also why he said it. He brings about the fall of humanity by successfully sowing doubt not only in the trustworthiness of what God said, but also the trustworthiness of God's very nature. He seduces Adam and Eve, he seduces us into believing falsely 
that God's words are not trustworthy. The plan of God is not one that comes from sheer goodness, that his words have an agenda that is separate from our highest good. Simply put, the enemy souls a fundamental doubt in the goodness of God through his temptation. And through our sin, he destroys that precious and fundamental innocence that was ours in the very beginning. And he has had millennia to do the same to countless generations of believers. The Catechism, this is paragraph 397, summarizes it this way. Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die. And abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin will be disobedience towards God and a lack of trust in his goodness. If you examine the history of salvation, from the expulsion of man and woman from the garden through the coming of Jesus in the incarnation, that long, beautiful story arc captured in the scriptures, God ever seeks man to reestablish and reaffirm that trust. It's an embedded theme in his saving action. If we look at the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, he's commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And we read about Abraham reaching the place where God had told him about. He built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And obviously, God spares the son and provides the ram in his stead. But it's this beginning, this first shift of Abraham towards, I will trust in the Lord, despite this being so unbelievably grievous to a father for his only son, right? Fast forward, you look at the story of Exodus. The chosen people have been liberated from Egypt. They've emerged into the desert and have had their 40 years of navigating the desert and all that the desert threw at them. And then Moses dies. He dies on the threshold of the promised land. He actually doesn't get to enter the promised land. And the responsibility of leading the chosen people into the promised land which will not happen all at once. It'll be in an act of trust. It'll be incrementally, little step by step by step. God chooses Jacob and Caleb. And so the question is asked, why Jacob? Why Caleb? Why these two out of all the chosen people? And this is what is said of these two men in the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, from 20 years old and above, shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb and Joshua, for they have wholly followed the Lord. There's this wholehearted trust. There's this pure and innocent and noble gift of self, and not for 40 days or 40 weeks. Joshua and Caleb would have held on to this for 40 years and therefore found themselves uh, chosen and worthy. Back to that scripture that I started the talk with. For God's, the eyes of the Lord range the entire earth to strengthen those whose heart is true to him. He searches among the chosen people and finds these two that he can bestow the responsibility of leading the chosen people into the promised land. Fast forward again. Let's go to the time of King David, right? The deepening work of God to reestablish trust in his people, not imposed, but drawn out from within, it takes on an even greater expression. If you simply survey the Psalms, the Psalms being every expression of human emotion or human life within the, the Christian and the, and the Jewish practice, 
many of those prayers written by David himself, it's unbelievable the number of times the word trust and or a posture of trust is invoked in those Psalms. Psalm 91, you who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shade of the Almighty, say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 23, Psalm 121, Psalm 11, Psalm 27. If you stand back from them, they're each in their own measure, prayers of trust in God. And in that seeking is a holy provision for his people. It's not a pledge of allegiance. It's a living act. And the Psalms are clear. To trust in God is not optional. This isn't a negotiation. God's not bargaining here. It's an absolute, it's a mandated thing. To place their trust in the Lord, you come back into a place of solidity and strength, which exceeds that which we are capable of on our own. It's this key incremental step, this key giving of self to what God has said he would do for us to become established in his divine life. This is from Psalm 125. Those trusting in the Lord are like Mount Zion, unshakable and forever enduring. As mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. And you can just sit in that, just the, the clarion call. It's almost like you want to respond, amen. You know, there's something inside of it saying yes. And then this has been my prayer for this year. It was given to me by a mentor and a friend, and it's, it's been something I've been sitting in for many long count of weeks um, since, since late last year. This is Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. You will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. We've all emerged from the ravages of COVID and the trauma that washed over the earth about, let's say, a year ago. Since emerging into a place of a little more calm, a little more openness, a little more freedom, a little more normal everyday life, God's been interestingly for me teaching and leading me more deeply into the offering of self that is this trust in God. Those who know my story, I've shared it on other recordings on this podcast and with, with you, my friends. But if you read the story of the prodigal son, it's obviously the story of the man who runs away, the younger son lives his life of dissipation, squanders all that the father gives him, etc. But there's this very important second son, the older son. And if you read Henry Nouwen's book on the return of the prodigal, he unpacks this beautifully. But this tragedy of the older son's intransigence to come into the feast. The father even says to him, all that I have is yours. Doesn't say that to the younger son. The younger son got half of the inheritance and now it's the sandals and the ring and the robes and the fattened calf and the throwing the party. Like, trust me, younger son is good and that is the mercy of God. But this older son thing, this holdout, and the father says, all I have is yours. And the younger son, the older son just won't budge. He won't come through, right? Such is his incapacity to love and be frozen. It's been really, really disruptive for me to both have the humility to identify with the older brother and to let go of some of that rules-based, duty-bound, sort of obliged, I'm going to crush out the spiritual life, like I said, of spiritual push-ups, you know? 
it's a marvel to me. It really is, guys, that that God's graces make possible and available to me in his grace and openness to trust, which is I get to put down my anger. I get to put down my but, 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 and all the excuses, all the self-reliance, all the I'm going to prove to God, I'm going to clean up my house and then go into the feast. I'm going to, like, God just wants to meet us where we are. Trust is, to use an expression, Christian faith, Christian hope, Christian love that's operationalized. It's put into action in concrete and daily ways. I had a tremendous amount of help in going from this hard holdout of the older brother. In many ways, I'm still that man. <clears throat> but it was our blessed mother whose prayers of trust is found in Luke chapter 1. At the Annunciation, she says to the angel, and therefore to God, be it done unto me according to your word. She gave me language that gave me the opportunity to think about, might I follow her example? And through her immaculate heart, my heart was softened. And so I could then see Jesus living out of a place of deep trust in the Father. And if you look at Christ, nothing is lost or lessened or diminished in him. He's a tower of strength abiding in the love of the Father and that trust. That deep abiding, that, that incredible refuge that Christ presents in his love for the Father and his trust for the Father takes its greatest and most elevated expression in the passion and death. This is from the account of his agony. So he's concluded the Last Supper. He's washed the feet. He's given the new mandate to the apostles. Love one another as I have loved you. They get up and they go across the Kidron Valley and they enter into his agony. He came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. And then these words, think about this in the context of trust. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. We obviously follow Jesus from that point forward into his passion. And if we fast forward to the cross, Jesus' self-emptying is complete. He hands himself completely over to the Father and dies on the cross for you, for me, for all of the world. And John the Apostle is the eyewitness. He's the one who stands at the foot of the cross along with our Blessed Mother. And he records it in the following way. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And this, this transitus, this handing of his spirit over to the Father is described in this way. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So great was Jesus' trust in the Father, he gave himself utterly and completely to God as an offering in justice and mercy. We'll come back to that. In justice and mercy for the sins of all. Trust comes from living out of that self-gift. It's more than just tacit faith, credence, like I said earlier, pledge of allegiance in the teachings of the church. It's more than just hope that gives us confidence in some sort of vague, better outcome. As valuable, as important as those precursive postures are, those dispositions towards what God is making possible and available, trust demands of us a level of vulnerability, of placing God first in the order of priority in our life, such that the invitation to live out the gospel becomes much richer, more fruitful, 
much more life-giving to us and to those around us. It's for this reason that Father Mike Schmitz, you know him from the Bible in a Year podcast, number one podcast on Apple, now the Catechism in a Year, right? He sums up the centrality of trusting God in his life. This is his own words about his own experience with trust. I trust God. This is the most significant grace of my entire life. We're recording this on Holy Thursday morning. We are, as believers, on the threshold of the Triduum. Later today, our own 40 days in the desert of Lent will conclude. And as we go into the Triduum, I just want to offer some encouragements, not because I'm an expert, but because I just want to pay some, some secrets of the kingdom forward. And these are some spiritual practices that have been helping me in the real, in the, in the day-to-day, to live out of greater trust in God, in the life, and in the relationship to which he is calling me. We've touched already in this talk about how our trust was broken and shattered in the fall. And throughout salvation history, God has established covenants with his people. The invitation has been to come back to God with all of our hearts, Psalm 90. In other words, oh, that we would hear the voice of God in a deeper and more powerful way, almost like the trust opens us to be available, open, receiving of that deeper call of the Lord. And obviously with Jesus, we have in him the true and living and authoritative voice who offers himself in an everlasting covenant that we might be permanently and completely brought back to that place of God and trust in our life. The older covenants were under the law. The new covenant is under this high priest who himself is the sacrificial victim. A little key that helped here. And it's a, a very practicable and insightful way of thinking about trust is where are those areas where I'm not trusting? Or said differently, where are the false idols in place that are barriers, obstacles, places of attachment outside of God where trust can't take hold of our life? And if you read St. Thomas Aquinas in his brilliance, he summarizes the four key areas of idolatry in the life of the believer under the four uh, following headlines. The four key pillars of idolatry of fallen humanity are under the canopies of wealth, honor, power, and pleasure. In wealth, we have the accumulation of worldly possessions and purchasing power, the disordered pattern of consumption which becomes a false idol in substitute of God. In honor, we have the seeking after praise and admiration of the world, that, that desire for popularity, of acceptance, of potentially even self-aggrandizement, which puts the created one ahead of the creator. In pleasure, we have the indulgence in the desires of the flesh, where the appetites are given free reign just to kind of do what they want. And how often we know from our own experiences, back to the prodigal son story, when I let our appetites run away unconstrained on us, it leads to this paradoxical emptiness. And lastly, power. Power is summed up as the capacity or the impulse or the drive to impose our will upon others, upon those around us, including the capacity to reject the love of God and seek after our own place of superiority before others. Just a tangent, I was recently in Rome and had a chance to be in the Sistine Chapel for an extended period and just studying the beautiful paintings and Uh, interpretations of the various scenes from scripture that Michelangelo adorned the Sistine Chapel with. If you look at the beautiful scene of creation of Adam, 
God the Father's hand is outstretched, his finger is straight. He's pointing and sort of initiating that love. God's love, his offer to man is always constant, and that finger is straight and outstretched. Adam's finger is crooked. It's, it's almost relaxed. Not because he's maybe doubtful, but there's this free will thing. We have to, as men, straighten our finger. We have to meet God. Such is the gift of God in, in his gift of life to us, right? So in wealth and power and honor and pleasure, we have the capacity to leave the finger bent. We have the capacity to straighten the finger and shed those idols to touch the true and lasting and eternal God himself. So back to Jesus on the cross. If you think about the crucifixion, you think about his passion, Thomas Aquinas more eloquently than I can even offer here says, it is a man who is perfect in and of himself, who sheds completely all wealth. He sheds completely all power. He sheds all completely all honor. And obviously with the crucifixion, the excrucio, he is absolutely crucified in the most barbaric and inhumane way. And there is no pleasure in that. The imitation is as believers to do likewise. Not literally to be crucified, but to certainly crucify these desires in the flesh. When you think about the questions of trust and how those questions of trust surface, it's usually around some attachment of our own to one aspect of those four idols. It's almost like trust is saying, have the vulnerability to take a good hard look in the mirror and see where is that pull to wealth in your life? Or where is that seek of pleasure or comfort over the promises of the Lord taking place? And if you're honest with yourself, it's there. Maybe to take this a bit deeper, I shared earlier how my devotion to our Blessed Mother and her incredible intercession for me and intervention in my life has provided its own extraordinary graces in this area of trust. I was in Fatima on pilgrimage, and one of the things I learned was something called the Fatima Prayer. And it goes something like this. Jesus, I believe, I hope, I adore, and I love you. And I ask forgiveness for all of those who do not believe, do not hope, do not adore, and do not love you. And there's a poetry to the fourfold aspect of the prayer. Belief, hope, love, adoration. But there's also this, if you pray the prayer authentically, more often than not, I'll find myself turning the prayer inwards in the following way. Jesus, I believe, I hope, I adore, and I love you. I ask forgiveness for myself in the measure that I've not believed, not hoped, not loved, not adored. As Psalm 50, 51 says, I seek your truth in my inmost being. There's parts of us that aren't fully given over to that trust, and so you have to work at it. Our Lady's Prayer from Fatima, that fourfold believe, hope, love, adore, for me in my own little practice is kind of a, a gentle pushing away of the allure of wealth. Trust me, it's still there. Very much a work in progress. I'm an advanced beginner. <laughs> but just that sense of these are true adversaries to my trust. That corrosive thing from Genesis chapter 3 is alive and well in my life. And I have to have the humility to turn the prayer to God and to myself so that God can repair and restore and establish in me something that I cannot achieve on my own. Out of this reflection on trust and out of the the opportunity that God sets before us, again, it's not optional. You know, this isn't a little bit of nice to have or some sort of private piety. This is core and central to the Christian life. 
there is a way back. And for inspiration for today, I'm going to turn to the private revelations of St. Faustina, who gave us the divine mercy icon and the devotions, which were later picked up and popularized by John Paul II. St. Faustina was a Polish nun, John Paul II, the Archbishop of Krakow, who then became the Cardinal and then became obviously Pope John Paul II, October 1978. The invitation to trust, which embeds the necessary question, you know, trust in what? And to be a bit more specific in terms of returning that trust back to God, there's a beautiful response to this question offered by Jesus found in the diaries of uh, St. Faustina. Again, the invitation is not to return to God in some abstract way, you know, no more spiritual push-ups, but to actually place the trust in God's divine mercy. Not to be confused with St. Faustina, there's a Sisters of Life nun named Sister Faustina Maria Pia. She wrote a book on the litany of trust. And in her introduction to this litany of trust, Sister Faustina Maria Pia puts it this way. In taking on our human nature, Jesus perfectly joined God and man in his very person. He embodies the encounter of God's love for humanity. And then Sister Faustina Maria Pia points to Saint Faustina and records the following. Jesus expressed in the diaries of Saint Faustina, I am love and mercy itself. There is no misery that could be a match for my mercy. Neither will misery exhaust it because as it has been granted, it increases, his mercy increases. The soul that trusts in my mercy is most fortunate because I myself will take care of it. I'll say that again. The soul that trusts in my mercy is most fortunate because I myself will take care of it. Sister Faustina Maria Pia, the Sisters of Life nun, continues. Jesus would repeat many times the importance of trust, but this, these words of his to St. Faustina may be the clearest. The graces of my mercy are drawn by means of one vessel only, and that is trust. The more a soul trusts, the more it will receive. Trust in the divine mercy understanding is choosing to receive the unconditional love of God for us as expressed through his mercy from the cross. And again, we've touched on this image of the crucified one, fully emptied of power, pleasure, honor, and, and wealth. He's trusted to the end and in his transitus, gives his spirit back to the Father. And then what happens, right? The soldier comes and spears his side with a lance and out flows blood and water. And that is the, the essence of the divine mercy icon. The blood poured out as the justice offering to God the Father. The water poured out as mercy upon the whole world upon which, by which we are washed clean. So what lies at the heart of trust, and again, you read St. Faustina, you read Sister Faustina Maria Pia's book, is this daily, hourly, moment by moment, living in the present, choice to trust in the Father and receive God in his goodness. And it takes practice and repetition, practice and repetition, practice and repetition. Sister Faustina Maria Pia writes, at the core of our person is the thirst to be loved and in that the unrelenting call to love. In being open to love, we must be vulnerable. Again, I said earlier, this idea of surrender, not on our terms, but on the Lord's. 
To be vulnerable is to risk the possibility of being hurt, harmed, or wounded physically or emotionally. We think of vulnerability often as opening ourselves in a way that will lead to pain and rejection. But I think of vulnerability as so much more. It's a place of deep openness where we are invited into authentic relationship. C.S. Lewis said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. And maybe if I can riff on that, to trust it all is to be vulnerable. I didn't want to leave us at the foot of the cross. I know we're, it's Holy Thursday and we're going to pass through the Triduum, but there's one last image to share. If you read in the Gospels, St. Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrection. And from that, she gets this beautiful title, the Apostle to the Apostles. She brings the news of Christ's risen resurrection back to the disciples. And then in one of the Gospel accounts, it says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. She followed. John waited outside, even though he was the faster of the two. Peter runs in, because that's Peter. He's just, you know, large and in charge. And he sees the folded linens and the napkin to one side. Very beautiful proof points to this was an authentic uh, resurrection that had never before occurred. Peter and John leave the tomb that Easter morning, just perplexed. You can sense as the gospel writer is recording this, they do not know what to make of this. St. Mary Magdalene, though, waits outside, and she's weeping quietly. And scripture scholars have sat in this passage of scripture and studied it, and it's possible, the language seems to point to the fact she didn't wait for some minutes, she, wait, she waited for some time, like such was her in grief. And she doesn't look in right away. Then there's this moment, she finally gets to look into the tomb, which is very interesting. Peter looked, saw, the proof of the resurrection. John looked in, saw the proof of the resurrection, and they leave perplexed. She's on the outside. She hasn't yet witnessed the events of the resurrection herself. And what's interesting is if you, if you unpack the, the human behavior within that, there's this idea that she was holding on to the last thing she knew of Christ, which was laying him in that tomb. And her grief was so extreme and her love for her master was so great that her heart could not sustain the blow of going into the tomb and being shocked and horrified if in fact they stole the body away. Even though Peter had his own encounter with the linens and the napkin to one side, John, the linen and the napkin to one side, and they go away. She's, she's in this place where she's in this deep, deep aching question of will I trust? And yet she, she somehow mushes the courage to get over that little rise and just look in. And then the events of the resurrection account unfold. And it's, it's not just rescue, it's redemption. And she ends up seeing our blessed Lord and he calls her by name. And it's just, it's in her, I'll just use example of, of a model it's a trust encounter with the Lord that how many times we've we been in that stretched place where it's easier to hold on to what we're sure of and what we know that's in the past, even if it's the horrifying aspects of the crucifixion and Christ laid in the tomb with Nicodemus and the others that loved on him. It's more comforting to hold on to the dead Christ than to overcome the 
barriers to trusting in, no, he's living and no longer among the dead. A little teaching that just continues to fascinate me. John Paul II, again, popularized the Divine Mercy devotion, but he wrote the following in Fides et Ratio, and he's talking about the answer to the question, why trust? What's the fruit of this? Why seek to expand our trust in God? And he writes as follows, from all that I have said to this point, it emerges that men and women are on a journey of discovery which is humanly unstoppable. A search for the truth and a search for a person to whom they might entrust themselves. Christian faith comes to meet them, offering the concrete possibility of reaching the goal which they seek. Moving beyond the stage of simple believing, Christian faith immerses human beings in the order of grace, which enables them to share in the mystery of Christ, which in turn offers them a true and coherent knowledge of the triune God. It's not just an opening of the heart to God, although that revelation is beautiful and it is the heart and the essence of the Christian life. It is not a set of philosophical treatises. It is an encounter with the living and true God, the God of all the ages. The Pope continues and stretches this still further. That trust and that lifeline restored with God opens us to knowing ourselves and therefore each other in relationship. He says as follows, It should be stressed that the truths sought in this interpersonal relationship are not primarily empirical or philosophical. Rather, what is sought is the truth of the person, what the person is and what the person reveals from deep within. Human perfection, then, it consists not simply in acquiring an abstract knowledge of the truth, but in a dynamic relationship of faithful self-giving with others. It is in this faithful self-giving that a person finds a fullness of certainty and security. It is in this faithful self-giving that a person finds a fullness of certainty and security. Is that not what trust provides? This from Fides et Ratio. So what of our Syriac Catholic priest friend, Father Jacques Morad? Doreen Abirad recorded the miraculous events of his story in the National Catholic Register. And I, I share these words here. As he was being scourged, Father Morad recalled, I received the grace to be thankful for what was happening to me. I didn't allow any hatred to enter in and take hold of me. I had pity on them, he said of his captors. I was really praying for them. For a few seconds, I was so filled with fear when they held a knife to my neck after the scourging, but when the guy started counting to ten, I started to ask God for his mercy and forgiveness. The life of Father Murad was miraculously spared. He would later say that a turning point in his captivity was when a masked man, dressed in black from head to toe, entered the cell and expecting to be executed, Father Murad and the deacon that was with him were puzzled by the man's cordial behavior. And when the priest asked the man in black why he was being held captive, the man said to consider their time there as a kalve, an Arabic expression for a spiritual retreat. And then the visitor left. Father Murad would say later, the encounter with that guy was a real consolation to me. 
He's the one who allowed me to feel that my imprisonment was a way to carry the cross of Jesus. It helped me to not fall into despair, Father Murat explained, and adding that afterwards he felt his prayer life had intensified. In another interview, the question was asked, what carried him during that time? And Father Jacques attributed it to two prayers which he prayed over and over and over, entrusting his life, his priesthood, the faithful under his care that he, he did not know what happened to them after he was kidnapped. Wherever they were, he entrusted all of it to God. I read these two prayers now, the first from St. Teresa of Avila. These are St. Teresa's words. Let nothing worry you. Let nothing make you fearful. God is with you, and so evil shall not come close to you. Let nothing worry you. Let nothing make you fearful. God alone suffices. The second prayer which sustained Father Murad was a prayer composed by St. Charles de Foucault, only recently canonized. He died in Algeria at the hands of bandits. He was living a life of a hermit in love for God. These are the prayer of St. Charles de Foucault. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and on all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself. To surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father. After six months of captivity, Father Jacques was moved back to his hometown. He was miraculously reunited with the people of his parish community, the beloved monastery where he had sowed seeds of peace and charity during the civil war amongst both the Christian people and the Muslim locals, tragically had been leveled by ISIS. Three days after being reunited with his flock, he would celebrate the Mass. It was St. Elian's feast, the feast of the monastery. In an underground location, Father Murad celebrated Mass for his parishioners. He described it as follows. During Mass, I understood that St. Elian sacrificed his monastery and his grave for the sake of the Christians there. It's a miracle for me that, of 250 parishioners, not one turned to Islam, despite the harassment they faced from the Islamic State. So I feel that St. Elian's intercession for me was really great. That miracle was not just for me and with me. It was for everyone. Father Murad also sees a higher purpose in his suffering. Perhaps the Lord allowed me to go through this in order to renew their hope, to renew their trust in the Lord. This past May 2023, Father Jacques was consecrated Archbishop of Holmes, Syria, and he continues to serve his people in the church with great courage and great devotion. As a gift to you, my listeners, and for your just care and attention, I invite you after this talk to look up and to take to yourselves something called the Litany of Trust. It was a prayer written by Sister 
Faustina Maria Pia, the Sisters of Life, from which the book came. The prayer came first, and then this book, this 30-day retreat that she offers in book form. It's a prayer which is challenging to pray, which also opens the door to seeing the graces above, being honest with ourselves. Where are those places of attachment? Where are those places where we're trusting in something that is not of God over God himself? Again, opens us to the door for the perspective that Jesus wants us to have, that he longs for us to see. It is through his mercy and our trust in that mercy alone that brings us back to that place of union and sonship and daughterhood and identity in God. I'm going to pray that litany here in a few moments. And just to wrap up again, borrowing from one more saint, St. Alphonsus Liguori put trust and the, the incredible power that trust has in the life of the believer. He used the, the following to describe that change in those believers. Those whose hearts are enlarged by confidence in God run swiftly on the path of perfection. They not only run, they fly, because having placed all their hope in the Lord, they are no longer weak as they once were. They become strong with the strength of God, which is given to all who put their trust in Him. The litany of trust and the response to these little phrases is deliver me Jesus and then it shifts to Jesus I trust in you so I'll lead you through it the litany of trust by sister Faustina Maria Pia sisters of life from the belief that I have to earn your love deliver Deliver me me. Jesus from the fear that I am unlovable deliver Deliver me me, Jesus from the false security that I have what it takes deliver me Jesus from the fear that trusting you will leave me more destitute Deliver me, Jesus. From all suspicion of your words and promises. Deliver me, Jesus. From the rebellion against childlike dependency on you. Deliver me, Jesus. From refusals and reluctances in accepting your will. Deliver me, Jesus. From anxiety about the future. Deliver me, Jesus. From resentment or excessive preoccupation with the past. Deliver me, Jesus from restless self-seeking in the present moment. Deliver me, Jesus. From disbelief in your love and presence. Deliver me, Jesus. From the belief that my life has no meaning or worth. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of what love demands. Deliver me, Jesus. From discouragement. Deliver me, Jesus. And now the prayer shifts and the response is, Jesus, I trust in you that you are continually holding me, sustaining me, loving me. Jesus, I trust in you. That your love goes deeper than my sins and failings and transforms me. Jesus, I trust in you. That not knowing what tomorrow brings is an invitation to lean on you. Jesus, I trust in you. That you are with me in my suffering. Jesus, I trust in you. That my suffering united to your own will bear fruit in this life and the next. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will not leave me orphan, that you are present in your church. Jesus, I trust in you. That your plan is better than anything else. Jesus, I trust in you. That you always hear me and in your goodness always respond to me. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me the grace to accept forgiveness and to forgive others. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me all the strength I need for what is asked. Jesus, I trust in you that my life is a gift. Jesus, Jesus, I trust in you. 
that you will teach me to trust you. Jesus, Jesus I, trust I trust in you. That you are my Lord and my God. Jesus, Jesus I trust in you. That I am your beloved one. Jesus, Jesus I trust in you. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. Feel free to check the show notes for discussion questions and thoughts for further reflection. Before we return to the pace and to the cadence of our day, I encourage you to pause. What of this talk spoke to you? How is God stirring something in your soul? You can find out more about the Breakthrough of Grace project at breakthroughofgracepodcast.com. We are praying for you, our listeners, and we look forward to having you join us on a future episode as people describe their ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. We're a small word of mouth movement. Can we ask you to share it with a friend? Please see our show notes and website for discussion questions and other resources. Until next time, may God bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you.